Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Crux. Uh, Gary, how is your, how's your week gone? It's fantastic. It's uh, fall here in Boston, cool and crisp. How about you? Well, my only disappointment has been that our Yanks only took nine out of 10 from the Red Sox. <laughs> uh, but the good news, the good news is that yeah. we have a dear friend on the show whom we will get to a bit later in Oscar Suris. Oscar, of course, is with the Zeno Group, plays a key role in that firm's strategy and crisis practice. He's also a former CCO, a former, and a former journalist like you. You know, he was, yeah, he was at the exactly. Wall Street Journal. Big time. Yeah, but before that, let's move on to, to some of the news. In the category that I might call does truth matter in justice and politics, let's go back like four years ago. Yep. In March of 2016, nine months ahead of the 2016 presidential election, President Barack Obama nominated Judge Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court to succeed Antonin Scalia, who had died just a month earlier. At the time, the U.S. Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, and 11 members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Republican members, pledged at the time to withhold consent of any Supreme Court nominee until after our next president is sworn in. And I, and I gotta tell you, six of those individuals on that committee are still there. Lindsey mm -hmm. Graham, Chuck Grassley, John Cornyn, Michael Lee, Tom Tillis, Ted Cruz, and of course, Lindsey Graham is now the chair. Now, fast forward, more than four years later, the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, and others are saying that the principle no longer applies. And actually, as I look at this, maybe it is that the same principle does apply. It's called political expediency. Yes. So our leaders say they yearn for an earlier day when America was trusted and respected. What do these actions say about trust in our institutions, trust in, in, in this case, maybe even the Republican Party. How do we recover from this? And, and, and what's, from a communications perspective, what's kind of your coaching here? This is an apolitical observation. Mm -hmm. I lament the lesson it sends to young people, mm -hmm. to people, you and I have been in politics, yeah. you know people, they look to their leaders very influenced by the way they behave. I just think this lack of honor is what it is, and, and to be direct, the lack of a sense of civility in living by a set of unwritten rules is going away. Yeah. And the lesson it sends, what it communicates to young people is that your word doesn't matter. We used to live by a set of rules. Yeah. That whether you're Republican or Democrat, there was a, a sense that there was a right way and a wrong way to do things. Mm -hmm. Those things have gone away. Uh, particularly you know, on the Republican side. I'm a Republican, so yeah, I, but, I can say this. But, but you know, to your point, and I, and I think it's true also of Democrats. I mean, what's interesting that we're, we're discussing this moment now is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a giant as a jurist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She did it on the basis of arguing the issue. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't about 
you know, in, invective against people, attacking people. And she was an institutionalist. Mm -hmm. You know, she found a way to get along with her other colleagues. It said that her strongest relationship on the court was actually with Antonin Scalia, mm -hmm. who couldn't be more different than her from an ideological standpoint and on many issues of law. So I'm with you. I think that somehow, some way, while we still seek progress, my hope is we shore up our institutions over time because it's necessary. And, and to your question about, you know, you, you look at people who've lived such amazing lives like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and you think, why? Why did they have such focus? And, and why did they have such sets, such standards that they constantly tried to hold themselves up to? I read over the weekend after she passed that she had a mission in her life, which was, she said, to fix the cracks in society. Yeah. And it's that kind of clarity of thought that helps drive people and, and keep them focused on what's right and what's wrong. And, and a lot of companies are thinking about their purpose and their mission and, and who they are and why they exist. This was Here's a person who, who actually followed through on that. Exactly. Now, now, talking about purpose, Patagonia. Patagonia has this vaunted image and reputation, you know, around all things organic. When I was at Cargill, we actually sourced organic cotton for them from Zambia. Wow. An impressive company in many ways. But what caught my eye was the story about labels. They are now affixing to Patagonia clothing that say, four words, vote the assholes out. Now, is that a bridge too far for, for, for corporate activism? Well, look, I, I think no. I think it's perfect for Patagonia. No. And, and I think, you know, it must be so liberating to work for a company or a brand like that that is so singularly purposeful, yeah. right? You know, you think of Ben and Jerry's, you think of others. The politics here are clear. The science is clear. Patagonia exists to help people enjoy the outdoors, right? Yeah. That's what they do. They, so they, climate change is linked to that outdoors. Exactly. And it's even interesting that they have the, the actual product is something that they call organic stand-up shorts. I don't know what stand-up shorts are. <laughs> they say that the purpose of the labels is that Patagonia has been standing up for climate change and standing up for science. And that that's really the reason for the label is they want to encourage people to go out and, and vote politicians out of office that, you know, are climate deniers or don't totally accept science. Well, you know, and look, here in the United States, over the past few weeks, we've had these devastating fires in California. Yeah. And the cities with the worst air quality in the world over the last few weeks, some of our great cities on the West Coast, even Portland. I had a friend out in Portland say he could not go out running the other day because the air quality was so poor because of these fires. So yeah. if you're Patagonia and you make products to help people enjoy the outdoors and climate change is preventing that from happening, it's also a commercial interest of yours. It's a passion, obviously, on yeah, their yeah, part. Yeah. And obviously, it's going to turn off some customers or prospective customers. Totally. Right? So it's a choice that you know, their founder had to make, that their organization had to make, that there were more wins than losses out of this. And, and it comes back to, as you said, how they define their mission. That's right. And look, 
Nike made a decision a few years ago that Colin Kaepernick was right mm -hmm. about the NFL and about systemic. So you don't think risk. Donald Trump is sporting Nikes these days? <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> not not by, well, I know he's not wearing them because, you know, I don't, well, maybe on the golf course it could be. But understanding your stakeholders, understanding your mission and purpose. And it turns out Nike, you know, the NFL now agrees with Nike, right? I mean, who would have thought that a few years ago? So some of these companies that are really, really purpose driven, understand their customers, understand the issues, I think there's room, reputation gains to be made by being very pointed. So I understand your point. And you talk about understanding audiences, understanding purpose. I'm going to shift gears here and actually uh, ask Haley McKee to join us. Haley is our assistant on this program. She makes us sound better than we have any right to sound. Graduate student at Boston University. Yeah. Um, but she has participated along with other students from Boston University. And they have this campaign that they launched about a month ago, getting prepared for students coming back to school in this COVID-19 environment. It's a safety campaign. And the words, I don't even know, I, I'm assuming we can say this on, on the podcast. Well, you go, you say it. Mike. I'll say it like it's written out. So it's like <laughs> capital F, asterisk ck it won't cut it okay so so now my mom won't get upset so they use this clearly as a attention grabbing effort so Haley, you're the account director on this project tell us how this came to be and how you came up with that tagline Sure. So I'm, I'm happy to talk about this. We've had a lot of fun with it in the past six weeks since we've launched. And our team is nine students now that all attend Boston University. And so we knew, obviously, that COVID-19 was going to throw a wrench in reopening the semester in the fall. And the university leadership knew that as well. So they devised this idea that if we want to communicate with students to enact safe lifestyle changes, maybe the best communication could actually come from students themselves. So that said, our little team of eight students at the time came together and created a few different campaigns. And this was the one, if it won't cut it, because my mom will listen to this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this was the one hey, that- Hey, mom. Hey, <laughs> mom. <laughs> this was the one that we all liked unanimously. And we were lucky. And when we presented this all the way up to BU leadership, they liked it as well gave it the stamp of approval and kind of sent it out the door. So what this really means is that we can't say F it and blow off these safety protocols and health guidelines that will keep us safe as well as the surrounding BU and Boston community. So What's been the reaction thus far? Yeah, yeah. The reaction has been overwhelming, just generally overwhelming. So we're going on about six weeks now since our launch, and we have gained over 5,300 combined followers across TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram, all among our target audience of undergraduate students at BU. What we've seen is also students at other schools as far as California and Hawaii have commented and said, we really love what you're doing, and, and that's been the biggest encouragement. And we've also had a lot of earned media attention, which has been a lot of fun for me doing the PR for the campaign. We've been in the Boston Globe, Inside Higher Ed, CNN, Fox. I was even thrown on a broadcast news site last minute at five one night and had no clue that was going to be happening. So it has been quite the learning experience and we've had a lot of great feedback from it. Well, and Boston <laughs> University itself has also had, I think, 
better results than a lot of other university campuses, certainly better than some state universities that yet are similarly sized to Boston University. Sure, exactly. And I think that's something that really does set this apart is the fact that as a graduate student myself, I go get tested at least once a week. Undergrads are up to maybe three times a week. And what's so cool is that while we are providing resources to students to be safe, they can also check Boston University's online data from the COVID database. It's updated daily and weekly. So we can kind of check the temperature of the room and see where we are. And so it's been really cool that not only are we being transparent, but the university is in this whole process with us as well. Haley, has, do you know if the university has gotten any negative feedback about the civility of the campaign? In other words, <laughs> I, I wonder said, what you mean. Those foul mouth students at BU. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. So whenever we launched this thing, it really picked up overnight. We did not expect that at all, to say the least. And so really the most questionable or apprehensive feedback we received was from people at the very beginning who just didn't know what it was. They were mm -hmm. like, why is the university using the F word? What does this even mean? But of course, as we were able to pick up, post content, get featured in some news sites, our mission became much more clear. You know, we're not just using the F word to grab attention but we're actually hoping to change lives and hopefully create a culture of safety here on campus. So now that we've been able to kind of define who we are with a lot more specificity, the reactions are much more positive. And we've really seen a lot of people coming together and wanting to be smart and safe, hopefully uh, because of our campaign. And it's everywhere on campus, Mike. And it's That's just right. such a brilliant campaign. And not only am I proud of the students like Haley, I'm proud that the university had the guts to do it. Absolutely. I, I think that says about a lot, a lot about the leadership here at BU. Exactly. And they've been great in that whole process. So they've hooked us up with placements on dorm towers, on Nickerson Field. Last Friday, we were even on some BU buses. So we have wraps around a couple of BU buses that go down Com Ave. We're in dorms and they've just been great in connecting us with people and with resources on campus to really bring this thing to life. Congratulations. So you, That's terrific. So you're, you're saying F it everywhere, Haley. <laughs> essentially, essentially. Yeah, good for you. It's going to be fun to see that on a resume someday. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, LinkedIn resume. I'm like, what is the best way to show this? I, we'll figure it out as we go. <laughs> that's great. That's terrific, Haley. Gary, let's go on to our interview. Our guest today on The Crux is Oscar Suris, who's Executive Managing Director of C-Suite Strategy and Crisis at the Xeno Group, which is really a growing and respected mid-size agency. Our listeners are familiar, certainly, with Oscar. Previously was the Head of Communications at Wells Fargo, Director of Corporate Communications, previously at Ford. Of course, Oscar started his career in journalism at the Orlando Sentinel, also at the Wall Street Journal. Oscar has been incredibly active in our profession, and I, I particularly got to watch him up close in his leadership of the Institute for Public Relations. I was on the board at the time, and Oscar kept us moving in the right direction at all times. Great strategic thinker. So, Oscar, I kept it short, your bio, because I think most of our listeners know who you are. So, welcome to the crux. 
Thank you for having me, Gary. Hi, Mike. It's a, Hi. it's a pleasure to join you guys. Now, especially now that the Crux is an international production, right? There you go. Exactly. We do have listeners all over the world. I get notes from people. Just got another one this week, I think, from Germany wanting to know where the Crux was because we've been on hiatus. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's so, fascinating. Isn't that great? That yeah. is great. Well, this will be in Europe. 35, right? <laughs> yeah. we, even have, we even have some people in Asia who listen in. So we're like the original. You know, there you go. We go we're, you know, there's some, some pretenders out there. This now. is a click and clack of PR. You have some fast followers. You have other people. You, you guys have forged a path forward for the professional podcasters in our field. Yes, right? absolutely. So, so tell us, what are you doing now? How, how do you like agency life? I love it. I love okay. it. After being a, a creature of a corporate America for a good 20 years and really never having had the opportunity to work at a small company, we, Xena Group is about 500 strong around the world. Most of the companies I've worked for have employed people in the thousands. Immediately, you know, I just found how refreshing it can be to be part of a flatter, more nimble organization that can really respond quickly to, you know, whatever's going on with our clients. And also, I think there's a multi-generational diversity that you get to enjoy in an agency setting that's not quite as easy to access in a corporate setting because you have such young, talented people assuming so much responsibility, driving events every day, honestly, on behalf of our clients, and you get to work with them. And so you, it's just all these different perspectives coming to the table. It, it, it's really cool. Was it different than you thought? In other words, you sat at the other side of the table from a lot of agencies over your career. Number one, that must be beneficial to you. But is the work different than you saw it from the other side of yes, the table? Yes, yes. Interesting. Well, it is because I think when you're on the corporate side, everyone wears the same jersey all the time. You know, you show up to the office and your team Wells Fargo or your team Ford and you bleed those colors. And we certainly have green pride at Xeno Group because we call ourselves the green machine. And one of the things I loved about the agency and Barbie Siegel's leadership as CEO is just its culture. You know, it's really proven itself as the case for many other great operating cultures in this environment. You know, even with going remote and seeing the distress that so many of our clients were going through and having a team as distributed as ours. It's that culture that keeps everything hung together and working well. And so when we've really powered through it, it's been great. Once I left banking and Wells Fargo, a bubble mm -hmm. burst and I got reintroduced to the world all over again. <laughs> and in an agency setting, you have that opportunity to let, just touch and learn and be involved in so many different things. I mean, whether it's our largest client, Lenovo, a global maker of technology and PCs and you know all kinds of tech hardware, or whether it's a consumer brand like Hyatt mm -hmm. uh, in the right. hotel industry going through one of the, the, the toughest crises an industry's been in in recent years, as you've seen revenue just evaporate overnight, as we've seen also with our friends in the airline industry with the arrival of COVID to clients like Coca-Cola and oh, I, that's I great. get to work with a client topped off watching <laughs> their journey of reopening again across right. the country so folks can get out and start having fun, but do it in a confident and safe manner. I mean, it's, there's never a dull moment. 
We talked about the diversity of the work. One of the things that both you and Barbie, actually, she and I both serve on PRSA Foundation Board together, is the issue of diversity. You and I share a little bit of common background. We've known each other for a long time. In fact, before I go to the question, how's your family doing? My family is doing great. I thank you. In fact, I'm going to Miami today where I'm en route there now on the Florida Turnpike headed to South Florida to see my mom and dad who were born in Cuba. They're still with us, fortunately. They're doing great. My dad is 77. My mom is 76. They took me out of Cuba when I was a little baby. I was all of nine months old. So they and my brother and sister and my wife and our kids were all doing wonderful. That's great. So so back to diversity. Barbie and you are, are really committed to the issue, and I love that. I, I also noticed that now you're publishing data on your website in terms of diversity, in terms of percentages of Blacks, Hispanics, and so on. What is Xeno itself doing to improve its numbers? Well, I mean, I think like so many of our clients, the events of May and June that followed George Floyd's murder had a profound impact on us all. And that included our own agency at Xeno Group. It was really powerful and touching at times to hear our colleagues' own narratives with systemic racism and with growing up as a person of color. Not unlike a lot of other places, those were galvanizing moments for us. We rallied around a plan that we put together called Act Together. It's an activity and a conversation that needs to be at the forefront every day when we show up and get to work. Absolutely. And, and what's also interesting is, is, is when you talk about the work, I, I have to imagine that after the events of late spring, early summer, that there is a, a greater demand by clients even to think about how do they best address you know, racial justice and equity as a company and with their customers. What are clients asking you and what are some of the things that that you've been working on with clients? You know, this hits home because one of our largest client is Lenovo. And as you well know, our, the global CCO there is none other than Tarad Neptune. And he just recently published a really powerful piece in PR Week entitled Racial Inequality in PR is Deplorable. He's also holding his agency partners accountable for making progress too, right? So you have to have a diverse and, team uh, on the account, I'm assuming. Sure, absolutely. And, and also, you know, that he wants to be, I think, partnering with people who want to drive progress in this area together with him, right? And, I, you know, and again, I, I think back to the together part of this act together mindset we've adopted. It's not just agencies alone, and it's not just the corporates alone. It's all of us together, honestly. As I'm a fine example, you know, the talent crosses those lines all the time, right? And the opportunities to identify talent and say, hey, you really should be talking to so-and-so. I mean, I did this recently with Gary, reached out to him because, you know, we also recognize at the agency, we could have better and stronger relationships with some of the universities, great communication schools across the country who are the first line of spotting some of this talent that's gonna define our profession's future. Well, you know, we gotta make sure those connections are as robust as possible. So those names are coming to us all the time. I also think that you're gonna see more people asking of agencies for about their multicultural capabilities. We were just pitched recently that we fortunately won, and that was the brief. How help our brand, help our products resonate and connect with diverse segments assembled the insights and offered a point of view and 
I think you're just going to see more of that getting baked into the RFPs. Well, and it has to, given the diversity that Gary has seen at Boston University and that we're seeing across universities all across the country. Yeah, absolutely. And keep it coming. Uh, I would add one more thing, too. It's also changing in the C-suite. I mean, you all may have seen the story in the Wall Street Journal about chief diversity officers. First of all, how in demand they are. And secondly, what a difficult job those roles can be to have that presumably that top responsibility for diversifying a company, right? And so we were intrigued by that, Barbie Siegel was, and it inspired a private conversation we brokered with some of our clients, chief diversity officers, so they could swap insights, talk about what the roles are like today. And then we also as an agency could gain a better appreciation for how all of that is playing out and what the implications of that are for us just counseling them and they for also relying on us to help them navigate, I think, the many issues that come with this space. Great idea. So listen, there was something else related to all this conversation we're having is I saw on your homepage, Zeno's homepage, was a phrase called societal acumen, something that communicators need to have. What does Zeno mean by societal acumen? The term we landed on after some reflecting I had done on my nine years as chief communications officer at Wells Fargo. And I can remember earlier on that maybe once or twice a year, you'd have a societal issue converge with a business issue and our CEO or our company leadership would look to communications to help them, you know, address it in some fashion, either through internal communications or what have you. But as the years progressed, whether it was marriage equality as an issue, the Dreamers Act, when that was seemingly at risk, it seemed like there were increasingly issues that were coming into the workplace where, again, you're having this convergence of business issues and societal issues. And, you know, it kind of speaks to the permeable line that exists, if one exists at all, between internal communications issues and external ones. Right. I think increasingly... Those are crossing over every day. And so we came up with the point of view that essentially to be effective communications counselors in the future, you must have some degree of societal acumen. I mean, look at the corporate awakening that occurred around the Juneteenth holiday. Right. Right. Yes. That's a great example. You know, I mean, this summer, suddenly companies were announcing we're going to make that a corporate holiday. We're going to recognize this event, you know, rewind the tapes five years ago what was the cultural understanding and appreciation for Juneteenth? Right. Probably far less than what we enjoy today. Yeah, I've always felt like what really moved the ball on gay marriage, marriage equality, was were corporations. That change took place quickly Mark, in the United States. Um, people forget Mark that. Mark Benioff, right? Right, totally, completely. And so, so how do I, te- I'm a teacher now, and I, you know, I led teams. How do you teach young people to be socially or societally aware? I think we all have to role model learning and continuous learning for the colleagues we work with and the teams we lead. Are you reading about the African-American community? I, I, you know, I was just, so book recommendation for the audience, The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson Mm -hmm. about the great migration northward from the South to communities in the East and the Midwest and to California as blacks escaped, you know, the Jim Crow, sought to separate themselves from the Jim Crow legacy. Another one, Dorothy Butler Gilliam, 
was the first black reporter and columnist, female, for the Washington Post. We need to really, you know, exhibit and model that kind of curiosity and desire to learn about people other than us to start to, you know, develop that societal acumen over time and on, and on an ongoing basis. That's a great phrase. I love that. Uh, modeling that kind of intellectual and, and, and broader curiosity beyond the products yeah. and services. And it's just a great, yeah. great way to think about it. Yeah. It's a little bit like the, the Jesuits would often say the questions are more important than the answers. <laughs> yes. You know, you got to be constantly <laughs> a thirst for more information, more knowledge. Yeah. Now, the other thing that is, I think, remarkable or set the tone for this year is in many ways, 2020 was the year of the crisis, right? I mean, what we're seeing here, you know, with the coronavirus, racial justice, more recently, the passing of uh, Judge Ginsburg and the opening of a Supreme Court seat and the attendant politics associated with that. You know, as you look at all of this, and obviously clients are, are, are probably in a whir. I mean, in the sense that, you know, they all have crises, but not these sort of mega societal crises. Yeah. Um, how do you kind of best coach clients as to whether or not to put their oar in the water or not in these issues and, and, and how to stay focused during these very crisis-oriented times? Well, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, because there's certainly many professionals in corporate America and elsewhere who would certainly appreciate that the work is devoid of political and social issues, right? Because we're here to do work first and foremost, and it should be primarily about business. And I wish I could say there's a way to actually make that happen, but I don't think that's possible in today's world. Mm -hmm. And also, some of the mega large, I mean, look at climate change and the fires out west in California and the probability and likelihood, if you just project out from here, that's only gonna loom larger over the global landscape. There's no business that's gonna be able to insulate themselves from that topic, right? right? So I think part of what we need to do as communicators is help business leaders come to terms with this constant convergence of social and business issues, whether they make widgets or sell a service. There's no getting around it. At some point or another, their leadership journey as business leaders is gonna involve some intersection with societal challenges and issues like that. When that happens, I think it's important to have clarity around what you stand for as a company, what's your purpose-driven mission, what are your cultural values, and who your customers are, really understand who your stakeholders are, where do you stand vis-a-vis of your stakeholders, and do you really understand what your stakeholders expect of you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so, so have these handful of, of mega issues that have taken place in the last year, have they changed the nature of, of crisis management? Have they changed the way I, we, we should be approaching these issues? In two fundamental ways. One, I think that while playbooks, Tabletop exercises, planning for crises has its place in the crisis communications discipline. But with the kind of world that Mike was describing a moment ago, you also have to think on your feet. And things are going to come up constantly that no playbook is going to have in its pages. 
And it's in those moments where I think real judgment and perspective is of tremendous value and where an understanding of your stakeholders and their needs and their expectations of you really come into play. And I think that's what, how it's gonna really change that, Mike, because I mm -hmm. think the latter is gonna happen more frequently, perhaps, mm -hmm. than the former. Yeah. Because we have so many things just evolving all the time, whether it's you know a COVID issue cropping up in your plant, mm -hmm. or you know something more related to social justice issues that are presenting a divide in your workplace, or what have you, right? But mm -hmm. they keep, coming and in those moments you just have to think through i think that stakeholder map of interest yeah. to see where you stand vis-a-vis -vis with them and i think it's not just an episodic thing i think it has to be an ongoing thing this is where the role of i think ongoing research and insights and yep. surveying taking the pulse of your workforce on a regular basis is going to be so critical going forward yeah, because not just planning, as you've made clear, it's it's having the agility and the smarts to be able to execute in the moment. Yeah. So so and, and thinking about that, so not to delve into the details of events because I know you can't, but you were at Wells Fargo during a a, a monumental crisis that they had as a company that some people referred to as the fake account scandal. The fallout is, is, is still being witnessed, as you know. But what I'd love to learn is if you had to give a lesson from the experiences that you went through, dealing with executives, dealing with the news media, dealing with various stakeholder audiences throughout that, what would be those key lessons? I think there's three that I would call out. The first is beware of the danger of thinking that looks like minimization, okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because I think the tendency, mm -hmm. I like that chuckle, Gary. <laughs> um, He's been there. <laughs> Gary, knows, <laughs> Gary knows the pain. He knows the pain. Well, no, but look, you know, the tendency is to believe the good intentions of your people, right? Mm -hmm. There's a big denominator, and even if the, and if the numerator is small in terms of the problems, you know, the vast majority of the things that are going right that's really that what ought to matter, right? However, that's not how the world sees it necessarily. And recognizing that, just embracing it is really fundamental when it comes to, to crisis and, and ultimately bringing a crisis to closure. Because, you know, a crisis doesn't end unless it is brought to closure in some fashion. Uh, that's probably lesson number two is, is whether it's addressing a quality issue or resolving a dispute with a stakeholder group, that's probably the second thing I would say. You have to keep your eye on the path to closure. If you don't realize closure in some fashion, that is still gonna feed the news cycles, is still going to weigh on your brand and company. So you gotta find a way to bring whatever the issue is to closure and minimization of the issues is not gonna help you achieve that. And then the last thing I would say, if you're gonna issue an apology, don't lose sleep over it, issue it, issue it big, issue it right. At the end of the day, the cost of that is really low and, and it's what your stakeholders really expect out of you. So you gotta get that right. It's, a, it's amazing how bad we are at apologies, isn't it? Well, there's a little bit of a debate that goes on in right. well-intentioned places where it's like, you know, well, legally we shouldn't do it or what right, have you, right. but I haven't, yet seen 
the lack of apology prevent a crisis? If somebody could show me that, okay, maybe I can get on board. But odds are you, you're giving away nothing. And honestly, you're actually speaking to what your stakeholders yeah. expect out of you. I so agree. Well, listen, Oscar, you've been so nice to come on, on on the crux, and I can't believe Mike is bringing up all these terrible, you know, situations that happen in your career. I'm gonna, you know, what can um, I tell you? <laughs> well, look, we all been there, by the way, all three of us on this call. So I want to ask you. We talked about it a little bit, but again, not, trying to focus on the future, and a lot of folks talking about the future of communications, given the changes that we've seen recently. I mean, in the last six months. The changes have been extraordinary and, and outpace some of the things that we've seen over decades. What's, what's the biggest change we're going to see in communications over the next two to three years? I don't want to ask five years because who knows, right? Yeah, who knows? You know, if I had to say, it's probably this notion that the chief communications officer will never, ever be a specialist again. Yeah. In the sense that whether you're in pharma or you're in banking, or you're in retail, or you're in manufacturing, um, the luxury of just being immersed in that bubble alone is no longer afforded to us. Yeah. Because you have to contend and deal with the global forces out there that are changing society, changing business, changing culture, changing the way we live. And, and to be a really great communications officer, I think you have to do more than just know the balance sheet, know the income statement, know your industry, and know your company's culture. You got to also be that much better bringing the outside world in, uh, mm -hmm. even more so. I mean, it was always, I think, an expectation, but I think it's that has only grown exponentially in recent years, and definitely in this incredible 2020, and I don't see that ever going away. I'm with you. And you mentioned this earlier too, Oscar, you talked about purpose-driven mission. And there's a lot of talk among CEOs about purpose and stakeholder value versus share owner value. Is purpose and defining it within an organization and an enterprise, is that the CCO's job of the future? I think in concert, yes, with the CEO and the rest of the C-suite yep. and certainly marketing, right? I mean, like yeah. reputation, it's never something we will own, I think, 100%. Mm -hmm. Corporations being the nat, you know, the animals that they are. It certainly is really valuable because I think this sense of knowing what you really are there to do every day and what your business is truly all about is what's ultimately going to get you through a lot of these storms we're in right now, right? Yeah. Because mm -hmm. you see it play out across all kinds of different brands. But I think the worst thing to do is to try to do something that is really out of character with your brand and with your company, just because you're trying to keep up with the times. Yeah. Uh, stakeholders, consumers, they smell that inauthenticity, you know, at yeah. 10 paces, right? So you're not gonna fool anybody. So if you really want to, I think, realize that kind of sort of stakeholder capitalism profile that increasingly all big brands need to have, you gotta first start with what you're all about. Right. Mm -hmm. I think right. that's exactly right. And I think you, I think a lot of CEOs are, I have a little bug about purpose these days I, and I completely support the concept, but I think a lot of CEOs, some CEOs, I should say, don't understand it. And I, I, I look to the CCO to bring them to a more authentic position about what, what it is to deepen their understanding, et cetera. Yeah. Well, well Gary, and you know, what's interesting is I, is I think some of it's beginning to change and it's beginning to change 
in part because what major investor groups are now doing, that is this whole world of ESG and yeah. ESG performance is now right. coming up in conversations as, as Oscar knows with CEOs from investment houses. And, and, and I'd be curious, Oscar, have you seen any of that with your clients? We have a purpose practice led by Allison De Silva at Zeno Group. She brings a great career of experience in that area. And it's one of the busiest areas we have in our, in our agency today. So yeah, I think there's a tremendous amount of interest in it, a respect that the world is changing around them and, you, and it's not just your customers, it's not just your employees, it's also your investors as well who have these higher expectations too. These things increasingly are not a, a, a box to check. They're actually something that has to become an ingrained part of how you show up every day as an enterprise. Yeah, I, I sense it, Mike. The appetite is growing. Yeah. And I think uh, uh, companies are desiring to do it better. And I find that really encouraging given the times we're living in. Yeah. So, so, so now we're, we're, we're here, we're, we're like a few weeks away from a U.S. presidential election. How should companies think not only about the election itself, but in terms of whether or not this is a time for corporate activism, or is it a time being cautious to remain on the sidelines? We need to be careful, first and foremost, because companies run workplaces, right? Your political beliefs should not matter or have a bearing on how your performance is assessed, what sort of opportunities you have, you know, what kind of workplace environment you have the opportunity to work in. And I think that I think it starts with um, I think companies becoming knowledgeable about what the law is, um, understanding you know how the First Amendment works, what degree of protections do exist for political speech. You know, the First Amendment basically says the federal government can't enact any laws that impede on your free speech, right? But right. that doesn't extend to the workplace necessarily. However, there's plenty of state laws that exist that that do provide some degree of protection for political speech. And then of course you have acts that, co- that cover the right to organize and what have you. So I think you need to be very careful and, and you also need to be knowledgeable. And I think you need to work in concert with your legal departments and your HR departments and your, your government relations departments in understanding really what you can and can't do. Because yeah. what I would hate to see is Workplaces are one of the last bastions in our society where every day the opportunity to operate as a team truly exists, right? Yeah. And irrespective of our opinions outside of the workplace. Exactly. And so I would hate, I, you know, I w- it would be very sad that uh, this election would also in some way impede on that. So I think we have an obligation as CCOs and as heads of those other functions I described to become knowledgeable mm-hmm about the law in this space and to do our part to alleviate some of the pressure that you know is obviously building and also to be just really respectful of everyone's point of view and right to have a voice in this election. I mean, we all have our passions and our our beliefs, but I think when I was in corporate America and did my work for many years and to this day, I'd like to think that people need to guess about my political beliefs mm-hmm. because I don't want them focused on that. I want them focused on my counsel right, and right. on the, you know, the value I'm trying to provide as a professional. 
but well, it's it's hard some days, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, and, and, I, I, and, Oscar, your 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 clients are very very lucky. I mean, you've yeah. been a heralded journalist. You worked at the Wall Street Journal, worked at Ford Motor Company, and various public relations and marketing roles. You've served as a CCO. My last question to you is really, so now you're in the inside, inside of an agency. What's that value that you see that's unique now that you're able to bring agency clients? First and foremost, when you're working inside a, on the client side, you have a market cap of a billion dollars or a market cap of you know, half a trillion. You're working in a company, you're working under a brand, and you're working within an industry. And one of the things you are prone to is insular thinking, whether it's the city or Silicon Valley or pick any other, you tend to see the world through the lens of this company and this industry. One of the great value that agency partners offer is that outside perspective Yeah. to get in and say, well, I hear what you're saying, but this is what's going on and what we're hearing as well. And you really need to take that into consideration and to keep that thinking fresh and exposed to the outside world, whether it's in the form of data, whether it's in the form of primary research, whether it's in the form of news media, you keep open line. I still talk to reporters. And so you can bring that perspective to the client and say, I hear what you're saying, and I can support what you're doing, but I think these are other things we need to take into consideration too. Yeah, that's, that's so smart. Look, Oscar, this has been terrific. We really appreciate you Thank taking you the time much. to be on the best PR podcast in the world. And uh, bar none, coming, right? Bar none, exactly. I, I take no prisoners when I say that. But uh, a highly coveted t-shirt and coffee mug from the Crux will be on its way to you soon as parting gifts. Again, really, really appreciate taking your time out of a busy schedule. You know, Mike and I are know you well, and we're so happy to have someone as respected uh, and obviously smart as you on the crux. So thank you. Well, you guys are wonderful. I love what you're doing for our profession through this podcast and really appreciate all you've done for me. You guys have been wonderful mentors as well. And you can bet that crux mug is going to be in a lot of Zoom calls. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Thank you, Oscar. Drive safely. Yeah, drive safely. Bye bye. Take care, guys. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.